climate developments in Indonesia, continued conflict in Myanmar, and a deadly bombing in the Philippines. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Lauren Mai, and today is December 14th, 2023. This week, Greg and Alina chatted about how Southeast Asian countries have responded to the Hamas-Israel conflict. We're so glad you get to join in. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Corey Donnelly in the studio. Corey is an intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lauren. I've been a dedicated Southeast Asia radio listener since season one, so I'm excited to be here. We love to see it. Was it your time as an international relations major at American University that got you interested in Southeast Asia? Definitely. This region was my concentration. I was very much engulfed in the Southeast Asia political sphere for the last four years, but I became interested in studying the region of Southeast Asia at a young age. Fascinating. Did you grow up in the region? No, but my aunt who moved to the U.S. from China helped raise me while I was growing up, so she and her family's culture had a significant influence on my lifelong interest in the region. Aw, we love a heartwarming family story to get us started. And with that, would you like to kick off the headlines for this episode? Sure thing. From a multi-billion dollar renewable energy financing plan to coral reef protection, Indonesia has been making major waves at this year's COP28, which kicked off in Dubai last month. Very true. I also heard that the island nation has committed to exploring the use of its geothermal resources, which is part of a major push during COP28 to move toward avenues for renewable energy. Isn't Indonesia home to roughly 40% of the world's geothermal energy? It is. Fun fact, in the last year alone, Indonesia powered 2.5 million homes by harvesting geothermal energy. That is an impressive number. Indonesia certainly seems to be making strides in its decarbonization vows and the best use of its location atop those tectonic plates. But there are still experts concerned about the costs of production to drill and harvest geothermal energy, worsened with a lack of political support even during the country's ongoing election where many candidates were focused on avenues for renewable energy. One project that Indonesia has no lack of government support in implementing is the spending blueprint for its $20 billion Just Energy Transition Partnership, Renewable Energy Funding, the Comprehensive Investment and Policy Plan. Indonesia announced the plan shortly before COP28. The Just Energy Transition Plan, or JET-P, is a system supported by the International Partners Group, led by the United States and Japan, and supported by EU nations, the UK, and Canada, amongst others. Under the JET-P, which developed nations commit to mobilizing resources to aid developing nations transition to clean energy and achieve their net zero emissions goals. That's exactly right. And so far, Indonesia has been the largest recipient of the Just Energy Transition Plan, which will help it to reach its goal of generating 44% of the nation's energy through renewable energy mechanisms by 2030. Today, renewable energy accounts for only 13% of the nation's energy resources. It sounds like this renewable energy financing plan could help with concerns in Indonesia over how to finance the geothermal energy initiative. Let's hope so, because as the world's fourth most populous nation, a transition to almost 50% renewable energy would be a huge win for COP28's goal of combating the climate crisis. Another huge win for climate change experts came during COP28 last week, when the United Nations Development Program Asia announced the Coral Reef Protection Insurance Project. The project is set to begin as soon as January and is contracted to mobilize finances for coral reef preservation in the wake of natural disasters without needing extensive damage assessment first. This plan is in part a component of a larger plan for the Indonesian government to create a sustainable funding model and establish a national conservation trust fund. In the wake of up to $3 billion in damages from natural disasters in the past 15 years, I can see why the establishment of a conservation trust fund would be a prominent initiative for Indonesian officials. 
Speaking of damages, for our second headline, we transitioned to Myanmar, where upwards of 500,000 people have fled their homes since October as armed ethnic groups began major offensive action against the military. Half a million refugees in addition to the already two million Myanmar people displaced in the country as of October? Sadly, yes, especially in the northern state of Shan, where hundreds of civilians have been killed or injured in the wake of this violence. The major offensive, a continuation of long-standing conflict between the military and resistance groups, has posed what is some experts to believe to be the biggest threat to the military's power hold since it came to power. In response to the resistance group's offensive strikes, the military has attacked Shan and other neighboring groups with heavy firepower and led to hundreds of thousands of displaced citizens. Tens of thousands of displaced people from Myanmar have sought refuge in Thailand, where Thai officials have allocated them to informal, temporary shelters. However, on October 21st, the Thai government announced that within two weeks, all refugees must return to Myanmar, which began a mass migration to empty the shelters. The forced displacement and lack of security or access to humanitarian aid is exacerbating the strain on these already marginalized communities. Even larger waves of civilian displacement could be on the horizon as the military faces potential collapse. That can't be good. Civilian displacement and injury have become widespread in Myanmar, with millions affected and threatened by violence between resistance groups and the military. Violence in Southeast Asia doesn't seem to be stopping at Burmese borders. For the final headline, we focus on the Philippines, where 50 were injured and four were killed after a Catholic mass in Marawi, the country's largest Muslim city, was bombed. Two Filipino members of a pro-Islamic state group, Mate Group, have been identified as key suspects in the December 3rd attack on the mass. Wasn't this the group that held Marawi under siege for five months in 2017? They were, which only amplifies the calls from Marawi residents to condemn the pro-Islamic state group. The regional police director responded to these calls by stating that they are mobilizing their resources to make sure the perpetrators are put behind bars. But so far, no arrests have been made, and a third suspect, currently unknown, has yet to be identified. Let's hope that they're found soon. Right. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Corey, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina talk about Southeast Asian countries' response to the Hamas-Israel conflict, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I am Gregory Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined by co-host Alina Noor with the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg. Good to see you. You too. Over Zoom again. We were in, in studio together for one glorious week for the last episode. Alina's now back in Kuala Lumpur. I'm in D.C. We are without a guest today, so it's just going to be the two of us. And today we are discussing the impact of the ongoing war in Gaza in Southeast Asia. And I think what Alina and I want to pull apart a bit today is the, the differing reactions that we've seen from the region and how uh, in ways both similar and dissimilar to the Russian war in Ukraine, we've seen this, I think, cause some degree of disagreement or at least difference among Southeast Asian responses and a bit of, of tension between Southeast Asian partners and their partners in the US and Europe in particular. So for those who perhaps have not watched any news for the last several months, Hamas launched a a series of attacks into Israel at the beginning of October, indiscriminately killing civilians and kidnapping Israeli citizens, as well as dozens of citizens from Southeast Asia, mainly Thailand and the Philippines. Israel 
launched its offensive into Gaza as a result. And as of the time of recording, we're recording on December 6th, Israel's current phase of the offensive into southern Gaza is ongoing. The response from Southeast Asia, I think we can put into three buckets, although these are very loose and, and we should pick them apart. But one, we have the position of the Muslim majority countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei, which have condemned Israel's overreaction, as they see it, indiscriminate killing of civilians and called for a ceasefire and a two-state solution, longstanding positions shared by most of the world, at least when it comes to a two-state solution. Then you have the Philippines and Singapore, which were more quick and have been more consistent in condemning Hamas's attack as terrorism and supporting Israel, quite similar to the position of the US and, and Europe, defending Israel's right to self-defense while calling for moderation and supporting a two-state solution. And then you have everybody else who's been quite careful uh, to remain neutral and, and not say anything, at least as, as far as I've seen. Alina, do you want to start helping pick those apart or add anything else? No, I think that's generally true. And the positions I feel largely align with state interests in what's going on in Israel and Palestine. And I think you see that very clearly with the positions that the Philippines and Thailand have taken, for example. Positions of Indonesia, Malaysia, to a lesser extent Brunei, I think are pretty much long-standing, have always been how they projected it this time from, you know, I'd, I'd say decades ago at least, and in the case of Malaysia. But I think given how visceral and visible the uh, violence has been on social media, it seems a little more impactful in many ways. And it's hitting not just the people who are watching these scenes unfold on their phones, but also putting more pressure on politicians to respond. And I guess we'll dig into that a little more, uh, particularly with Malaysia. Yeah, let's just let's start in Malaysia. You're in KL. Right. You've only been in KL a couple of days now on this latest leg of your trip, right? That's true. Actually, I was in India. I was in KL, then I went to India, and then now I'm, I'm back in KL again. So a few days is about right. Yes. Okay. So you've been you've been in and out. How much is this? You know, dominating evening news broadcasts and and social media is is, is it as pervasive as one assumes from the outside watching like Anwar and Malaysian media? I think the heat has toned down a little, but, you know, on news channels, particularly government channels, you still see newscasters, news anchors wearing some version of the, the Palestinian kufiya as part of their outfit um, every single night. And so that that's really interesting. But it's reminiscent, I think, of the sentiments from past decades, like in the early 2000s, remember, and I remember being in KL and uh, seeing these pictures of protests like every Friday in front of the U.S. Embassy in KL. And that still continues, I think, to a lesser extent now. Of course, uh, towards the beginning of Israel's offensive, uh, the protests were, were larger and uh, they were more impassioned. But I think that sense of solidarity with what's going on in Palestine is still largely there amongst uh, many Malaysians, uh, not just Muslims, but also non-Muslims as well. Before we dive into 
the position of the government of Malaysia, and particularly Anwar. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the Malaysian government's ties with Hamas? Because it is, I think one of the things that really sets Malaysia apart from Indonesia is a longstanding semi-official relationship with Hamas, including the de facto Hamas ambassador alongside the official ambassador of the PLO, which I assume puts Anwar and any other government in, in a bit of a box now. Uh, I don't know if I would. No, I mean, I, I suppose there's some truth to saying that Anwar is uh, in a little bit of a box, but I think he himself largely feels very personally about this issue. And so it's a matter of him also, you know, voluntarily to a large extent taking the position that he is now. And you're right, like there is some sort of a Hamas semi-official office here. It's called the Palestinian Cultural Office in Malaysia. Uh, but it was actually set up by senior AMNO leaders a, a number of years ago. And so, you know, this cut, cuts across pretty much all the Malay support for the Palestinian cause, cuts across all the Malay Muslim organizations, uh, political organizations in Malaysia. And as I mentioned several times now, it's it's been there for decades. So Anwar Taking the stand that he is now is simply continuing, and maybe some will say he's trying to outdo Mahathir in some respects. But yeah, this has been an evolution of positions from many politicians from, uh, throughout the Malay political spectrum. Hmm. You know, the Indonesian government has been much more careful to keep Hamas at arm's length. It's, it has the official Palestine embassy in Jakarta, which is run by the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And I remember looking at survey work done by, I think it was Pew, in 2008, following the, the elections that Hamas won in Gaza, where they polled Muslim-majority uh, publics across the world. And Hamas was fairly unpopular almost across the board, with very few exceptions. And Malaysia was one of the places where Hamas found more support than it did in the rest of the Muslim world. And that I assume now carries through to today. I wonder is this is this an effect of elite signaling in Malaysia that the the embrace of Hamas over the last fifteen years has in a way equated Hamas with the larger Palestinian cause in Malaysia in a way that maybe we haven't seen in other Muslim majority countries. I think there are many factors, you know, and it's really hard to generalize. Other Muslim majority countries, right? We take the Gulf, for example, they have their own strategic and political interests that they're trying to protect when it comes to um, how near or how distantly they'd like to be affiliated or even associated with Hamas. But I think in Malaysia, there is probably some elite political signaling that's created this impact. But there's also a grassroots sentiment that's pretty genuine, I think, you know, that has been there for quite a number of years. And part of that sentiment has to do with the fact that not everybody views Hamas as shockingly, right? And this is probably pretty scandalous to most of our listeners, that Hamas is not viewed comprehensively as this terrorist organization that many other countries have made it out to be. It's, it's viewed by many Malaysians as a resistance force against occupation. Maybe this is really what sets Malaysia apart from even its closest neighbor, Indonesia, in this sense. Hmm. Where does this leave Chinese and Indian Malaysians to navigate the discourse around the war right now? Do they just keep their heads down? 
or or do they go with the flow and voice uncritical support of Hamas in order to avoid criticism? Yeah, again, very difficult to tell without rigorous surveys, right? But just anecdotally, you know, you have non-Malay Muslims who are agnostic about the Palestinian cause, but feel some sort of sympathy with those under occupation and those, especially now, being bombarded the, the hell out of them, if I can say so. And uh, that's just on a humanitarian and, and compassionate standing. But you also have like even evangelical Christians in Malaysia and traditionally in the US at least, evangelical Christians have been very strong supporters of Israel. But evangelical Christians here have also taken on a pro-Palestinian position. And again, this is largely on humanitarian grounds. But I think now with there's a bit of a generational shift. And again, this is all just anecdotal. I just get this sense uh, reading social media posts and just talking to friends that uh, there are some younger non-Malay, non-Muslim Malaysians who are questioning the government's unyielding support for Palestine and why that should be the case. Hmm. So it's very interesting little minor shifts that are going on in Malaysian society and sentiments related to the Palestinian grievance. Hmm. I had a conversation in probably mid-October, let's say Malaysian elite who will go unnamed, who said, you know, there's, there's far more nuance in the online debate in Malaysia than you're seeing, but nobody is going to say it in mass media and no political figure is going to say it. The only position that is acceptable in Malaysia is uncritical support for Hamas and condemnation of Israel, but that's not necessarily reflective of the public discourse, at least online. Sounds like you are agreed with that. Yeah. And, you know, I I don't know who this person you're talking about is, but it is, I would agree, it is very difficult to get a real sense of what's really going on. And you can dissect this in so many ways, right? I pointed out generational shifts, but there's probably also, you know, ethnic and other communal identity shifts as well going on, especially with what we're seeing on social media. It's really hard to tell. Hmm. Let's, Let's talk about Indonesia. That you know, some of the narratives that we hear in the West are simply that Indonesia and Malaysia have taken the same position uh, in condemning Israel. I don't think that's true. I think that President Jokowi and other senior officials, even Foreign Minister Retno, is probably going the farthest and was the Indonesian rep, for instance, to the special summit of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, has condemned Israel's violence, its overreaction. Um, but it hasn't embraced Hamas and it hasn't, I don't think it's, conf- they've conflated Hamas and the overall Palestinian cause and the rhetoric in the same way that, that Prime Minister Anwar has. At the same time, we've seen actually far larger protests in Jakarta than we have in KL. Now, admittedly, there's always large protests in Jakarta. It's kind of a weekend thing. So, um, this, <laughs> you know, getting a million people to march in, in Jakarta is, is actually not as hard as people might think, it seems. But we haven't seen the same level of, I guess, elite rallying of that support, right? You haven't had Anwar stands in soccer stadiums and rallies tens of thousands in, on behalf of Palestine. Indonesian elites have been very careful to try to moderate public opinion. Why do we think that is? I don't know. Well, why don't you start, Greg? Why do you think that is? Well, I, I suppose partly this may be that 
Indonesian political elites don't have the same longstanding relationship to Hamas. As, as we said at the top, there is no Hamas representative office in, in Indonesia. Indonesian political connections have historically been to the PLO, not Hamas, although there is the Indonesian hospital in, in Gaza, and that has certainly drawn a lot of public sympathy in Indonesia. Understandably, you have Indonesians who are in danger. It may also be the top-down signaling from Jokowi when Jokowi was in Washington for the bilateral visit with with Biden, and then again when he was in San Francisco for APEC. He voiced the, I think, the bottom line for any Muslim politician, which is a two-state solution and an immediate ceasefire. But he didn't use the same kind of rhetoric condemning, you know, Zionism and Israel and giving uncritical support for Hamas. In fact, he he doesn't use the word Hamas. He talks about Palestine. And so maybe other elites take their cues from that signaling from the boss. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of this has to do with the Hamas factor vis-a-vis Malaysia specifically. Hamas, I think, makes an appearance in a lot of Anwar's rhetoric. But, you know, if you look at official statements by the Malaysian government, still largely talks about Palestine and the Israeli occupation. In fact, I remember Foreign Minister Retno's intervention at the UN. She was very, very forceful in her intervention, talking about she repeated herself uh, when she mentioned Israeli occupation. This did not start with October 7th. And that to me was really quite, it wasn't surprising, but I think the fact that she repeated the occupation at a UN meeting goes to show that there is a symmetry in both Malaysia's and Indonesia's positions. But I think because of the domestic factor, the domestic political factor and how Anwar is a got his back up against the wall, I would say, on many issues domestically right now. Maybe there is some sort of overcompensation going on with the the rhetoric that he's been putting out there with specific regard to Hamas and Israel. Mm. And I mean, you certainly right now as from what I've seen, at least, I'm sure there are Others who have had stronger positions, but among senior government officials, Retno seems to have taken the strongest position. She had that line at the OIC summit that Israel has no right to self-defense because it's a colonizer, which is problematic in certain ways. But, you know, perhaps it gives Jokowi then space to take a, a softer line if the foreign minister is out there. But certainly the one key difference for the U.S. has been the way that Jokowi and Anwar have moderated or not moderated their discussions with the West. You know, Jokowi seems very cautious to make sure that the difference, whatever it is, and I don't actually think it's as wide as some people make it out to be, but the difference in positions between the West and Indonesia do not upset his broader efforts to cultivate the West. And, you know, we saw this with his very careful messaging on the issue in both Washington and San Francisco. Anwar is not being careful about the way he talks about Western support for Israel and Western pressure on Malaysia. And I I don't know how long the tale will be on kind of how much that dampens future US and European cooperation with our government. But I think it certainly will make it hard for Western countries to then turn around and look to Malaysia to play any kind of mediating role in the conflict. Yeah, and I think it's tempting amongst Malaysians to see this as Anwar's play at 
well, speaking to the gallery because he has this reputation of being close to the West amongst Malaysians. He had that reputation. I think to a certain extent he still does. And, and again, I think he's trying to overcompensate by just wildly swinging to the other side of the spectrum. But I think this also brings up a really important point that you alluded to, Greg, of the credibility of both Indonesia and the Indonesian and Malaysian governments of the United States and the credibility of the United States and other Western countries to both the Malaysian and Indonesian governments on the question of Palestine, but also on the question of international law and the so-called rules-based order, right? And the fact that Retno said what she did at the OIC meeting, I think, I mean, you and I may disagree on this, but technically she's correct. By international law, Israel is a belligerent occupant. And an, a belligerent occupant does not have the right to self-defense because, it, it, in, in fact, it has a responsibility to protect the people under occupation and under its uh, administration. I So you're right in that the international community over decades of UN votes, among other things, in publicly supporting a two-state solution, have established a legal obligation for Israel that does not exist for other occupiers. But look, there are countries in Southeast Asia who are at this moment arguably colonial occupiers, including some who are condemning Israel and argue that Israel has no right to self-defense. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole lest we lose listeners. But, you know, <laughs> if that same logic were applied uncritically across Southeast Asia, then we would suddenly see a lot of insurgencies and terrorist attacks that we would argue governments in the region have no right to respond to. Uh, yes, but I think the, the key difference is that there has been this UN-sanctioned framework, right, especially for Israel. And yes, we can go into the histories of different uh, countries in Southeast Asia and how that pervades uh, through till today. But And I suppose it's a lesson for all of us as to, you know, who we point our fingers towards. <laughs> Let's... Uh... Let's take a quick survey of the rest of the region. So as, as we said, we've seen, I think, the most uncritical, well, not uncritical, but certainly the strongest support for Israel and its right to self-defense from Singapore and the Philippines. I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I, I chalk this up mainly to both of those countries' historic concerns about national security and the belief that while they support a two-state solution, the kinds of indiscriminate attacks on civilians that we saw from Hamas cannot be normalized as as a means to pursue self-determination. Thailand has been forced to take a more moderating position, mainly because of the number of Thai citizens who were kidnapped and the need for Thailand to work through both its own Muslim politicians, including the Speaker of the House and Malaysia, to negotiate their release. Anything, any other color you'd like to add on the positions of some of those countries? No, I think that's generally true. There is some distinction uh, between the Singapore and the Philippines, of course, right? Because the mm -hmm. Philippines obviously has overseas foreign workers in, in Israel as well. And uh, Singapore's history has been inextricably linked to Israel. And I think that's why they've taken the stand that they have. But yeah, I think the Philippines, in a way, like Thailand, has also been, not I wouldn't say forced, but it, it has taken its position that it has because of its own um, interest in its domestic foreign workers in Israel. That's right. I haven't seen if there have been any major 
protests in Patani in southern Thailand, but there were certainly several protests in Mindanao. And this came at a time when the uh, Philippine government was prepping and then holding the first uh, barangay elections in the Bangsamoro down in, in Mindanao. So I, I think they were certainly cautious that right. they didn't want to upset the process. And now we just saw the tragic uh, bombing of the uh, mass at the University of Marawi yeah. this past week, which the Philippine government has been quick to say there's no evidence is related to Palestine, but does, again, raise the specter of IS-related violence in the southern Philippines. So perfectly reasonable reasons that Manila and Bangkok want to be a bit cautious in their positions. Sure. And then has anybody other than Brunei, which did sign the trilateral statement with Malaysia and Indonesia after the APEC summit, I haven't seen any major positions by any of the other Southeast Asian countries? No, I mean, I haven't seen anything by Vietnam or Cambodia. Laos is the ASEAN chair. I haven't seen anything from them either, but maybe I missed out on a statement or two. Yeah, and it was noteworthy that the first ever ASEAN Gulf Cooperation Council summit happened, what, three weeks after the Hamas attacks. And I don't think there was any mention of Israel-Palestine in the joint statement, which perhaps speaks to the lack of consensus within ASEAN on any language they might have agreed to. Yeah, I mean, they were focused on energy issues, as I can remember. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's then tack back to the the two countries that are taking firm positions and have perhaps the most import on this issue. For the U.S., the million dollar question is whether this will lead to any medium term, I suppose, diminution of U.S.-Malaysia cooperation or U.S.-Indonesia cooperation. What do you think? I we're not seeing it yet, I don't think, but it's still early days. Right. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, it's been like, like close to two months now. I, I think in the case of Malaysia, I can't speak for Indonesia, but I think the U.S. credibility on this issue is going to take a, another hit. You know, I remember all these discussions in the past about why it is that it's been so difficult for the U.S. to gain political traction amongst domestic constituents in Malaysia. I, mean, I was part of the group telling them what's well, because of the U.S.'s Palestine position. And I think this is going to be reinforced with what's going on now. Now, whether it translates into spillover effects into other aspects of the bilateral relationship, probably not. Um, and I think the biggest hit will be in in the credibility and repu- reputational dimension of the relationship. What do you think, Greg? I I don't want to cop out here, but I do want to see polling. You know, I I'm I worry that we will see a short or medium term desire for politicians in Malaysia and Indonesia to play it safe. You know, to kind of take the temperature of the room before they embrace any new cooperative measures with the West. I mean, I don't think we're going back to the Bush years where, you know, support for the U.S. was single digits in Indonesia and Malaysia. And I'm hopeful that this that this will be uh, if there is a dip, it'll be a short term dip. I take a little bit of solace from watching the positions of the three candidates in the Indonesian elections, all of whom, of course, have come out very strongly in support of uh, Palestine and a two state solution. But I haven't seen any of them 
you know, using this as an opportunity to get on their soapbox and beat up the West. Right. I mean, your assessment might change, though, by the middle of next year with uh, the U.S. presidential elections heating up. Um, and then we might see a change. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, look, given what we saw from the first Trump administration, certainly a, a Trump running for president, much less a Trump who might become president, could really use some worrying rhetoric here that could lead to a tanking of U.S. credibility across the region. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, we have a few months to to go before we see how that plays out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's leave it there then. Alina, thank you so much for joining from from KL. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back for one more episode this year, which will be our Q&A. So if you have any burning questions about anything that happened or I don't know what Alina and I like to eat at the uh, holiday celebrations, which I think was a major question in last year's end of your Q and A. We covered that last year, but I'm always happy to talk about food again this year. Mm. Oh, or how much I hate Elf in the Shelf. That was yeah. that was a big <laughs> that's, topic. That's so, right. or or Snoop in the Coop for hip hop fans. Anyway, <laughs> any any <laughs> questions, big, small, or stupid, feel free to send in to Southeast Asia Radio at CSS.org or over our social media channels. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at Radio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb and Corey Donnelly. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Lauren Mai. And I'm Corey Donnelly. And we'll see you next week for a Southeast Asia Radio holiday special. 